As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. As we draw closer to Juneteenth on June 19th, the anniversary of the day when enslaved people in Texas were emancipated, two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, we offer a remarkable story of the black residents of a small town in Florida who fought for their right to vote a century ago. This three-part limited series is brought to you by Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble believes that words alone won't create change, but stories do. Seek, share, and expect the whole truth of black life. Widen the screen to widen our view. One hundred years ago, in the center of Florida, just a few miles from where Disney World stands today, there was an exodus. Hundreds of black families piled their children into wagons. They trudged all night along roads and railroad tracks and through sugarcane fields. They barely escaped with their lives. Dozens of their loved ones did not. They were lynched, shot, burned to death in the wreckage of their own homes. Today, this is forgotten, largely missing from history books, handed down only as a secret memory between generations of the families who escaped. But in 1920, that November night, the town of Ocoee, Florida, wasn't a secret. It made headlines around the world. There was a grand jury investigation, even a hearing before Congress, and Americans, black and white, knew exactly why it had happened. They knew what it meant. This exodus was a warning to any black citizen who dared to try to vote. I'm Eugene S. Robinson, and this is the Election Day Massacre from Aussie Media. 
2012, Randolph Bracey became the first representative from a new state house district in Central Florida. Less than one-sixth of the members of the Florida House were black. I was looking for office space after I won my election. And I had recently moved to Ocoee, and I decided to put my office in Ocoee. Ocoee is just a dozen miles from Disney World, but it still has the feel of a small town. There's a pretty lake, a splash park for the kids, a beloved ice cream stand, the perfect place to live and work. And I remember there was an African-American woman, older woman, and she almost lost it when I told her I was moving my office to Ocoee. But she was from the age where she, the era, where she remembered that it was a sundown town where you couldn't be in Ocoee unless you had some business and you had to be gone before it dark. Bracey, now a Florida state senator, was shocked. But many people who live in the area longer are not. Historian Marvin Dunn is Professor Emeritus at Florida International University. He grew up in Central Florida. My father uh, told us, told me and my brothers, about picking oranges in, in Ocoee. Uh, when they would leave to come back to the land, if the driver, the white driver, lingered until um, uh, almost dark, they would walk out of Ocoee rather than be caught there after dark. Ocoee is a diverse community today, and it had a thriving black population long ago. But for half a century, Ocoee had almost no black residents. But this was in the 90, late 90s, and they told me, please don't tell anyone that you're coming here, that we've invited you here, that we're showing you where the black communities used to be. Paul Ortiz is a professor of history at the University of Florida. Don't tell anyone, because it could put your life in jeopardy, it could put us in jeopardy. There are good reasons why no black person want to live there for so many years. A Koei resident and community historian, Pamela Grady. You can see that's what happened there. You can feel that energy there. It's still, it's still alive and well. What happened in Ocoee a century ago remains the worst incident of Election Day violence in U.S. history. What happened in Ocoee was not an altercation. It was more than a lynching or a shooting or a riot. What happened in Ocoee was a massacre. And what happened is all too relevant today. Florida is still uh, actively involved in voter suppression. I didn't even get why she was so <laughs> scared for me. And then I kind of learned the history, and I think it's so appropriate to talk about it in this year's election because it is still to this day the bloodiest day in American political history, having on a presidential election. One hundred years ago, African Americans in Florida were preparing for a historic election. Soldiers had come home after serving their country in World War I. The local economy was booming. Women had earned the right to vote. The promise of America seemed closer than ever before. And then, in a night of unspeakable violence, everything changed. There was no question who was in charge in Central Florida a century ago. Often, at the time, many of law enforcement and local politicians here were also members of the Ku Klux Klan. Pamela Schwartz is the chief curator of the Orange County Regional History Center in Orlando, Florida. One prominent white citizen at the time estimated that about 90% of law enforcement officers, judges, and lawyers in the Ocoee area were Klan members. 
there's a new rise in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, there's a resurgence of white supremacy. Uh, there's an active um, movement for white supremacists to try to disenfranchise black voters. In the days leading up to the election in November 1920, the KKK was especially active. There are marches throughout the state of Florida, Jacksonville, Daytona, Orlando, of Ku Klux Klan, sending that same message of, do not get out to vote if you are black or else. In Orlando, around 500 hooded men paraded behind three figures on horseback. They used megaphones to get their message out. Paul Ortiz is the author of Emancipation Betrayed, the hidden history of black organizing and white violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the bloody election of 1920. In Daytona, uh, the night before election day, they marched through Mary McCloy Bethune's campus, you know, and the, the municipal authority um, controlling the electricity actually cut electricity, you know, to Daytona Industrial Girls School so that the Klan could march through with their torches and terror tactics and, and act really scary. It's just all of this stuff is boiling and boiling and, and no, the events of November 2nd and 3rd send it over the top. This was an event hundreds of years in the making from the, the first enslavement here up through black codes and Jim Crow laws uh, and the suppression of, of women, the suppression of black voters, the, the suppression in all these different ways uh, leading up to, to something like this event erupting. 500 years ago, Florida was under Spanish rule. It was a sanctuary for slaves who were able to escape the British colonies. But after Florida came under the control of the United States in 1819, President Thomas Jefferson sent American troops to help capture former slaves and return them to their chains. Slavery ended with the Civil War, but segregation and ideas of white supremacy remained strong. Central Florida was especially attractive to former Confederates. Marvin Dunn is the author of A History of Florida Through Black Eyes. Central Florida was a, was a magnet for uh, people who had lost the Civil War. Because keep in mind, Florida was untouched by the war, uh, and Central Florida provided the cattle that fed the Confederate Army. So businessmen in Central Florida made money during the war, while other parts of the South were being decimated by the war. By 1920, Florida's economy was booming. The citrus industry was exploding, so uh, a lot of black people were attracted into Central Florida for that reason to work. The town of Ocoee, with its lush orange groves and farms nestled along Stark Lake, was especially attractive. A number of black people, black men in particular, had um, managed to get property, orange groves on their own. There's a man by the name of Moses Norman. Now, Moses Norman had lived in this community for some 30 years. Uh, he was not just some you know, young guy. He, he was a well-established individual, well-known in town. He had his own car. Uh, he was known to be a labor broker. Mose Norman at the time was driving around in a car that was worth about seventy-five to hundred thousand dollars. Pamela Grady is the executive director of the July Perry Foundation. That's a Mercedes. That's a Jaguar. You know, that's what he was driving around in at a time when nobody even had cars. There was only maybe one or two other cars in the whole town of Otoe. You know, and here's this black guy driving through <laughs> town in this nice car. You know, that had to infuriate them. The foundation is named for Mose Norman's good friend, another prominent black citizen of Ocoee, Julius July Perry. Nothing really happened in Ocoee without him. Florida State Senator Randolph Bracey. 
he was kind of like a broker for even white businessmen who wanted to come in and uh, do do some farming uh, transactions or what have you. He he ran the town. July Perry and Mose Norman were pillars of the Okoe community. Historian Paul Ortiz. They were were successful individuals. They're very hard workers. They were they're very good family men. Um, they were highly respected. And the reason I mentioned the term highly respected, and this is the most important element I think about Mose Norman and July Perry and why, why they represent such a threat to white supremacy. Because these two exceptionally respected men were involved in an exceptionally threatening activity, helping black citizens vote. In the wake of World War I, black Floridians had organized a remarkable statewide voter registration movement. And the movement really crested and built momentum as African-American soldiers returned from, from Europe. A lot of black veterans came back to the South and they had served in Europe and they were not uh, going to accommodate themselves to the racism that was in their, in their communities. And Mose Norman and July Perry in particular were among those who came back with that attitude. The two veterans joined hundreds of other Floridians who were mobilizing to combat white supremacy in 1920. There is this huge black voter registration drive that's supported not only by the black community, but also by white Republicans. Not all of them, most of them. This was at a time when most African-Americans were members of Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party. In many places in the South, blacks could not even join the Democratic Party. And thanks to the 19th Amendment, women would be voting for president for the first time in 1920. This is a whole new voting block, and that includes black women. And what it's doing is it's causing a lot of tension. People don't always accept change. Uh, and so with this, you also see sort of a resurgence and an ongoing rise with white supremacy in the Ku Klux Klan. Klan members were not the only white supremacists trying to hold back the new wave of black voters. Once the white, you know, white, white elites and white media and white leaders realize this is happening, they use their op-ed space, their, their banner headlines, White women, it's up to you to save the Republic. This is the greatest crisis in our nation's history. And a typical op-ed will say, uh, white ladies, do you want your Negro washerwoman to lord over you, to take control? Do you want that Negro custodian to marry your daughter? The threats heated up as the election approached. White supremacy is in a crisis. They're much more honest <laughs> than, than racist today because they're very blunt about it. They're like, white supremacy is our way of life as an American. Some white Republicans in Orlando, including a local judge named John Cheney, helped July Perry and Mose Norman organize black voters. About a month before the Ocoee massacre, they receive a letter from the Florida Ku Klux Klan, signed by the Ku Klux Klan, that basically says stop or else. Sir, while stopping in your beautiful little city this week, I was informed that you are in the habit of going out among the Negroes of Orlando and delivering lectures explaining to them how to assert their rights. The Grand Master of the Florida Ku Klux Klan reminded them what happened when white people tried to help black voters during Reconstruction. You will remember that these things forced the loyal citizens of the South to organize clans of determined men, 
who pledge themselves to maintain white supremacy and to safeguard our women and children. We shall always enjoy white supremacy in this country, and he who interferes must face the consequences. So there is a threat. There is, and this is a, this is a primary source. We have the original in our museum collection that <laughs> that that states this. Just days before the Akoe massacre, there are marches throughout the state of Florida. If you ask a black person to register to vote in 1920 in Florida, you're asking them to take the risk. You're asking them to risk their lives. You're asking them to risk their livelihoods. You're asking them to risk their physical safety. On the morning of November 2nd, 1920, black citizens of Ocoee, Florida made a heroic decision. They ignored the Klan marches, the torches, the letters, and the threats. They prepared to exercise their most fundamental democratic right to vote. They knew it would be challenging, but they had no idea of the horrors that awaited them. This three-part limited series is brought to you by Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble believes that words alone won't create change, but stories do. Seek, share, and expect the whole truth of black life. Widen the screen to widen our view. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jin. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jin! Huh? Oh! Oh! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All 
I ask for and payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, on election day, from what we know, you know, Mose Norman and July Perry um, are with African-Americans who are trying to, to vote. Historian Paul Ortiz. And what happens in Ocoee is, again, similar to what happens in many parts of the state. Uh, people are, are standing in, in, in a line. We don't know how many people. And if they're black, you're not allowed to vote. Historian Marvin Dunn. This was a planned attempt to challenge the uh, the denial of the right to vote in, in Ocoee, in Central Florida more broadly. Armed white deputies declared themselves poll monitors. Poll workers challenged black voters. Names mysteriously disappeared from the voter rolls. Poll taxes, it was claimed, had not been paid. In Ocoee, anyone turned away from voting had to go to the local justice of the peace to contest it. And he had conveniently gone fishing that day. Mose Norman was among the people who tried to cast a ballot. And he um, goes to the polls to vote. He is turned away. His name had been placed on the stricken list uh, for voting, and he was never restored. They claim that Mose Norman, a wealthy landowner deeply involved in voter registration efforts, had somehow failed to pay his own poll tax. There are conflicting accounts of what happened after Mose Norman was turned away at the polls. One of the biggest problems with this event is how few true primary source documents there are, because why? They weren't kept intentionally. It's, it's intentional erasure of the history. Black citizens of Okoe and their descendants have spent decades trying to unearth what exactly happened on election day 1920. Pamela Grady. I'm a resident of Okoe. And, you know, nobody knows. These people, you have 40,000 residents, you know, and most of them don't even know the land they're living on, what happened, the history, the rich history. Pamela Schwartz collected oral histories and documents for an exhibition at the Orange County Regional History Center. There are hundreds and hundreds of versions. Um, we actually took 129 and synthesized them into one mega account in the exhibit. So it's this huge, like 20 foot wall. It's like 14 pages of text and it's all in line. You can see where the twists and the faults of memory and the lies and all of these different ways the story has um, changed over 100 years. In one version of the story, Mose Norman returned to the polls with his shotgun, sparking an altercation with the armed white deputies. In another, more likely account, Norman took his case to Judge John Cheney in Orlando, historian Paul Ortiz. Again, he's trying to find ways to let, you know, people in power know that this corruption is happening in Ocoee. You know, but the problem is, even if he was able to contact someone like Judge Cheney, there's really nothing Judge Cheney could do. Um, if he's able to, to contact the supervisor of elections in Orange County, that guy is not going to do anything. Judge Cheney is said to have advised Norman to go back to the polls in Ocoee and get the names of people preventing black citizens from voting. 
This was likely to file a complaint or lawsuit, but it was a very dangerous errand. According to one version of events, Norman enlisted his good friend July Perry to help. The most important thing I think about most Norman July Perry is that black people trusted them. And both men felt a responsibility because of that trust to see things through on election day. And that is a testament to their, you know, their character and their courage. I mean, they could have stayed home. The safest thing for black people on election day, 1920 was stay home. But neither man played it safe. Historian Marvin Dunn. The two men went back to the polls. Uh, there were armed white men there who chased them away. There was some sort of a confrontation. And uh, these men, these two men went to uh, July Perry's home, retreated there. Pastor Stephen Nunn is the founder of the July Perry Foundation and president of its board. He's July Perry's great-grandson. His grandmother, July Perry's daughter, Coretha, was a teenager when Mose Norman was turned away at the polls. She told me that um, he wasn't allowed to vote and a conflict took place. And in the process, there was a fight that broke out. That fight ended up at the Perry's front doorstep. She told me that um, ultimately uh, there was a rumor that spread around town that um, the uh, black residents of Okoye had gathered at July Perry's home to um, discuss a revolt, to go back and demand their right to vote, if you would, um, which she said was not true. In the following hours that this white mob, actually they called themselves the Posse, uh, had been deputized actually to go and find out about the disturbance at the polls and they knew that July Perry and Mose Norman were among the activists involved in voting. So the attention of the white people sort of focused on them, but they weren't really sure about who was involved in terms of the, the rumor that blacks were armed at July Perry's home. That circulated very quickly in the white community following the, uh, the confrontation at the poll. Now enters um, Burley Jones, a uh, black man who was a former slave, who was owned by a local white man. And Burley Jones, who was a quintessential Uncle Tom, told the white people that blacks were arming themselves and were ensconced in July Perry's home. And that's why the mob went to July Perry's house. At some point later that night after the polls closed, a white mob, an armed white mob, goes to the home of his friend and fellow labor broker, July Perry and violence breaks out. Bull sh shots are fired. She told me that at a certain point in time, uh, some of the white residents, um, men of the uh, city of Okoye, um, came to their home and basically made a demand for her father to come outside and they wanted to talk. And of course he refused and said no. And um, she did tell me that um, there was uh, an attempt to force someone attempted to force their way in and there was some gunfire. There's a lot of people that are still trying to cover up the story. And so, so for example, when I first came to Florida in the summer of 1994, um, I was told by white middle-class people, even scholars, oh, Paul, why are you coming to Florida? We've had such progressive race relations here. Uh, we didn't have Jim Crow like they had it, you know, you should go to, uh, uh, we're not nearly as bad as Mississippi, Paul. Uh, you know, you should go to Georgia. Well, it was just funny because I'd already been, I've already done field work in Mississippi. I'd already done field work in Georgia. 
Because when I talked to Black Floridians, they told me, oh my gosh, who is telling you this nonsense? You know, Florida was just as bad as any other state in terms of race relations. So there's really no place for Black people to find sanctuary from that, that kind of the kind of white violence, you know, that, that occurred in Orange County and other places. So it's an organized attack. It's an organized assault on neighborhoods, you know, on, on a community. In the next episode of the Election Day Massacre. She said that, um, the gunfire was so great that you could see the bullet tracers uh, coming through all angles in the house, just flying all over the place. I mean, basically, people are defending their homes as this white, you know, paramilitary operation is tearing through their 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 neighborhoods, and they begin to torch and burn and, and loot and pillage this entire you know community. There is no way we will ever factually probably know how many black people were killed that night. Records were intentionally not kept. One man told him, I shot 17 Negroes. He shot 17 himself and he was bragging about it. Basically, you had a choice. You can leave and get shot or you can stay and burn. Uh, and they burned to death. We don't like to use the term ethnic cleansing unless we can use it in Eastern Europe, right? But it, it happens here. This episode of Flashback, The Election Day Massacre was written by Sean Braswell and voiced by me, Eugene S. Robinson. It was produced by Maeve McGoran and Iore Odigizua. Chris Hoff engineered our show. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.